0: Hello everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here with uh, Dr. Pack to discuss uh, obstructive sleep apnea screening uh, in commercial drivers. Dr. Pack, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us on this podcast. I'm going to start off with getting an idea from you. What do you think the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea is in commercial truck drivers?
1: Okay. No, I think I think that's a great question. Uh, I mean, we were funded many many years ago to do a study of prevalence of sleep apnea in commercial drivers. We did it in people who had commercial driving license holders that we got from the state. We found that an AHI greater than five was present about 28%. In our sample, it was roughly 5% had a severe OSA, namely with an AHI above 30. Uh, There was another study come out almost at the same time, the Howard study, which actually was done in in one company or a couple of companies where they they studied drivers that were active, and they found a similar prevalence overall, uh, but they had a higher percentage of people with severe sleep apnea, over 10%. Now, since that time, of course, we've had uh, increasing prevalence of sleep apnea. I mean, that's been documented. And certainly, obesity is a very big uh, problem for, for commercial driver licenses. So my guess is that since we did our study in the Howard study, the prevalence numbers are higher. There's been a recent recalculation, as you know, from the data from Wisconsin, showing the numbers going up as the obesity rates increase. So it's an extremely common disease in commercial drivers.
0: And and therefore of such great concern. Uh, You and several others were part of this uh, expert medical panel that made some recommendations to the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. Uh, regarding obstructive sleep apnea and commercial motor vehicle drivers its safety. Could you briefly review for us what your recommendations were or the panels? Yeah,
1: it, yeah that, was a ve- that was a very interesting um, exercise. Uh, so I think there's, there's a couple of things that you know re- really important about evaluating commercial drivers. Uh, and the first thing, which is actually documented in the literature, is that self-report is of no value. I mean, there, there's a study out there which looked at, you know, they added the question about snoring to the, the 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 annual evaluation, the biannuals, so every two years, evaluate, medical evaluation of commercial drivers, and there's about 1,500 in that study and nobody snored. And certainly our own experience, we have a program with one of the trucking companies, Amerigas, is that self-report really is of no value, and we appreciated that. Uh, so, So our recommendation, actually, from the... From the expert panel was you, you got a trade-off against you didn't want to be taking people out of work uh, that you know didn't didn't have a severe disease and equally you didn't want people driving who had undiagnosed sleep apnea so it is isn't it is actually a kind of balance you know an appropriate balance you have to strike. What we did in our our expert panel at that time we recommended that anybody with a BMI over 33. Uh, who, who was coming for employment uh, needed to get a sleep study as part of that. We didn't talk about pulling them off the road. Uh, we talked about how to get a sleep study, get them in CPAP, because it's very effective treatment. Uh, at that time, there was a medical advisory board. Uh, and basically what happened was that, that was the recommendation from our group. I think there were six people in our group, and, and I think the majority said 33. One person said that was allowing people, it was two it was too much risk in that, and it should really be 30. Uh, I presented the findings of the the, the expert panel uh, on on, on obstructive sleep apnea to the medical advisory board uh, public meeting and And basically they took they, they said two things uh, so the first thing they did is they, they they actually considered the minority opinion of our group to be the appropriate one. So the official recommendation, which didn't come from the expert panel but came from the medical advisory board, was anybody with a BMI thirty or above. Uh, should have a sleep study as a condition of employment as a commercial driver. Uh, the other comment, which was very helpful, was, was was Sullivan from the Snyder truck. She'd done a, a very important program that maybe we'll have time to discuss later with Snyder. Uh, and basically, uh, she said, you've got to be really careful because we talked in this study about how you could do it with, not only with lab studies, but home studies. And she, she made the point, which wasn't in the recommendations, but she made it at the public meeting, that you needed a chain of custody because you're not really sure if if somebody went home with a home study who actually did the study was it the driver was it the spouse or whatever it was and and so she advocated that if home studies were to be used you needed very good chain of custody so that's what we did and we made that recommendation and i should say that the, the fmcsa which had been established initially in the Clinton administration, and they've been tasked with reducing in half the number of deaths for commercial drivers. By the time we did this in 2008, that had not occurred, the number was almost the same. Uh, People said, well, yeah, but you know, there's a whole lot more commercial vehicles on the road, so we are actually making progress. Uh, Congress, uh, around about the mid-2000s, actually asked FMCSA to establish a medical advisory panel and asked them to look at all the different conditions which may affect driving. And, and they hired ex- external companies Trigger, Trieger, I think with Stephen Trigger was the, the first author and he did meta-analyses paid for by FMCSA that are published in sleep uh, and showed that when you looked at it, 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 you know, it wasn't so much in commercial drivers, it was in car drivers, there was a lot of studies showing an increase crash rate and he actually told us when we met as an expert panel that the data that was the most convincing of all the study, all the conditions that he'd been asked to look at was for obstructive sleep apnea. There was a lot of data showing that there was an increased risk of crashes and then data, albeit an observational study, showing that crash rates declined in CPAP so so that that's what happened uh, at that point the fmcsa didn't do anything uh, and as you see the ntsb caught, talked about that and then there was a subsequent i wasn't on the second expert panel but then there was a subsequent expert panel that came out with somewhat different um uh, you know recommendations, but that was our recommendation. We we strongly argued that if you had an apnea hypopnea above 20, you needed to be uh, you needed to be you know, treated. You had to be treated. We should be. You should document CPAP compliance, and uh, you should do that. You know we didn't say right away now that because the technology at that time to do the Bluetooth and all that did not exist. Uh, but now you can obviously check it on a daily basis. But we said that they needed to get recertified fairly frequently, I think annually, I think we said, and they had to come in with compliance data to show that they were compliant with CPAP. We we did not recommend the intraoral device at that time as an alternative because there was no way to document compliance, and we thought in this group documenting compliance was really important. Since then, uh, intraoral devices with compliance monitoring has appeared, uh, and so my guess is that with the new technology uh, available, uh, I think our group would come to somewhat different conclusions about how rapidly to assess compliance and whether uh, mandibular advancement devices were an effective alternative in certain patients. So that's what we did nothing ever happened and then they as i said they got another expert panel and then i think you know and then i think it's 2015 somewhere about that that they then come okay. out with additional uh, additional uh, you know stuff that they recommended
0: So, and exactly that, so I think so from the period of 2008 to 2015 there didn't seem to be much change in their official recommendations, at least from what I could see on their website. But in 2015 they did have a bulletin um, that suggested that there should be obviously active screening of uh, commercial motor vehicle drivers, and at that time I think based on some of the recommendations, the BMI that I could see on their website was around 40 or greater than right. 40 rather than the 33. And only between 33 and, and less than 40 would be screened if they had some other medical condition like type 2 diabetes, right. high blood pressure, stroke. So they yeah. actually did change. They were more generous with their BMI recommendations.
1: Right. Let's put it this but, but way. But there was still, I mean, there was still, uh, I mean, what it would boil down to, if you look at this stuff, okay, it, it would really, because, I mean, it's almost like the, you know, the... These instruments that are out there that that talk about you know screening because if you look at this if you're between thirty three and forty if you get age of forty two and above you've got one point if you're a male you've got a point, so you get two points for that if you have an x greater than seventeen, you have three points you've got another point so so you 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 would rapidly. In these older drivers, in male, because the vast majority of these people are obese. You know, they're really quite obese. That's right. They're male, and and the ones that are older here. So you'd have three points if you were older, 42 or older, you're male, and your neck size is greater than 17. So essentially, this for a large percentage of the of commercial drivers, this would mean that they would get a sleep study similar to what we talked about in uh, in 2008, the greater than 33. I mean, the challenge is that, you know, I, I, I was in the group in, in, in 2008 that said 33 was a reasonable cut point given the sort of positive and negative predictive values. And in our own data, um, it, it really makes a huge difference because if you went in our own data on commercial drivers, which is many years ago, and the numbers will be higher, Uh, It was that if you had a, a BMI above 30, that was 42% of the workforce in in CDL holders in our study. If you went above 33, it was 24%. So it really affects a huge population of commercial drivers. Uh, You know, and that's that's been one of the pushbacks. You know, this is going to be so economically challenging to people um, uh, to see what happened. But nevertheless, you know, uh, you're right. It's a slightly different uh, recommendation. I think it may end up in a very similar place. Uh, But, you know, that's what you got. It's above 40 no matter what, it's it's greater than 33 and less than 40 with at least three or more of these points. And there's a whole list of points, as I just indicated.
0: Yeah. So right now, then, as it stands, it seems that this 2015 statement by FMCSA is sort of their go-to guide, if you will. And they, um, any medical professional... Can, is qualified to make this decision as to whether or not this driver needs to go on to further testing based on these recommendations. Right. Is that correct? Right.
1: Yes, and, and, and what's happened is, you're right, I mean, they've got the recommendations out there. I think it's certainly very valuable to follow these recommendations and so on, uh, and, and I think that's a, that's a good thing to do. Uh, I mean, what's basically happened is that the while well, well, the FMCSA has taken no deliberate action in this area, they did indicate, I think, in March of 2016 that they intended to come out with rules in this area as you know, and including rail, and we'll talk about rail in a minute, that they were going to come out with rules and they said, you know, we're going to bring out specific regulations in this area. Uh, the NTSB was recommending they should do it and for various reasons. Uh, but then recently the Trump administration just announced, you know, that, you know they, they're stuffing they're, they're they're, they're all of that. They say there's not enough information. am not sure what information they want. Uh, but basically there, there, there was a move to rulemaking, uh, but that's obviously not, not going to occur. Having said that, what's happened is the FMCSA has implemented other things that really change change the game essentially. Uh, a long time ago you, you had to get these biannual, you have to get these biannual histories and physicals and as I've indicated, um, you know, self-report is not of any value because nobody admits to any symptoms, or very few people admit to any symptoms. And in the past, you you could, you know, if you were turned, if I turned you down, I said, look, I can't certify you, you might have sleep apnea, I gotta get a sleep study, you could walk down the street and go to somebody else. And in addition, you could go, chiropractors could sign off, you could find a chiropractor, pay them $35 and get a certificate. So it was an extremely weak uh, system. Since then, they've tightened it up. They, they, there's they, they, the people will know if you turn them down, there's a website. They ha, they have some sort of certification process with an exam for people who are doing histories and physicals. So, so really, the, the, that that whole process in terms of the history and physical examination is tightened up substantially. And now you're putting the burden essentially on these occupational medicine physicians uh, to certify people. And if they think the driver's going to sleep badly, they not going to do it because then they're legally liable right I mean in other words I mean what you're seeing is you're seeing these big lawsuits against companies with a driver who, who, who sleep apnea fell asleep and you know killed people whatever it was and, and that would bounce back on the occupational medicine person that actually did the certification so while they haven't brought out regulations I think things have moved and I think things have moved in the sense that the occupational medicine people that they're, they're, they're more professional the people who are doing doing the evaluation. They're concerned about liability. They're sending people to get evaluated for sleep. And then the other thing that happened was a number of the big companies put in programs in this area. Uh, The most most famous one, the first one, was the Snyder Trucks one. Uh, Basically, what happened to Snyder was uh, they had an occupational medicine program, and if you missed a day of work, you had to get evaluated by this group. And after several months of this, the group realized that a lot of these people that were doing this really had obstructive sleep apnea, and they persuaded the company to go out and uh, do a study where they, you know, they, 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 they evaluated risk for sleep apnea, and then people at high risk, they did sleep studies and got them treated. And, and what they taught, it wasn't ever designed as an academic study. And they talked about it in the trucking newspapers and what they indicated, they reduced crash rates, they had reduced absenteeism, they had increased persistence of people in the workforce, people just didn't leave. And there was a very positive return on investment for Snyder doing that. And in fact, Snyder's continued it. Uh, J.B. Hunt's done it, Walmart's done it, the company we work work with. uh, they, They drive propane around, Amerigas, which is a national company. So a number of companies have brought in themselves programs in this area the Harvard group, Chuck Seisler's group, got together with the people at Snyder and managed to uh, get the Snyder paper published in 2016 in Sleep. And it shows you in that paper, uh, you know, what happens if you screen. You have a, a program like this, and you're actively screening. You're finding people, you're getting them on CPAP, and, and in that program, they didn't actually remove people immediately who who had been diagnosed with sleep apnea, who had uh, who were not using CPAP. It's a bit a risk for them. But there was a group of people in that study who were known to have sleep apnea who continued to drive, and what they showed is that that group had an increased crash risk, and they showed that the people who were diagnosed with sleep apnea on CPAP, the crash risk went back to the same as the rest of the drivers in the company. So so I I think that study clearly shows the advantage of, of, of having a program like this, and a number of the major trucking companies have implemented that type of program.
0: And that's great. So these are the more of the grassroots efforts, rather than having the um, federal agencies yeah, enforcing certain rules. And that probably yeah, would that, be more effective I think in, in some
1: way. Yeah, that's what's happening. I mean I mean the, the ATA and the independent owner operators organization, they just lobby away in Congress and they try to block about all of us. But progress will continue. Uh, I mean I mean I think I just talked about the, the the various trucking companies, I think the occupational medicine physicians and they're referring a lot to, and one of the reasons we get this contract with Amerigas is they were finding that a lot of the drivers in different states they they recruit drivers in all the states so we can send for sleep studies and the company was left managing this problem, right? And and the compliance and all of that stuff. So that's why they asked us for help. So I, I think that combination is working. In the rail side, I don't think there is as much data, to my knowledge, and you know, in terms of uh, you know people doing in-depth studies and all that thing. I, I don't know that. I mean, I, not to my knowledge. But but really, what happened in the rail side was it was a number of very high-profile crashes, where the NTSB found the cause of the crash was related to the driver of the train have an undiagnosed sleep apnea. The Metro North crash a few a couple of years ago where the guy went round a curve at 80 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour curve. Four people were killed. There was over a hundred injured. He was found to have undiagnosed sleep apnea. The whole Hoboken crash, it were in in New Jersey transit, where the guy went into the train station, the thing fell down, uh, the train you know it didn't stop, and I think two people were killed in that. So the NTSB has been all over that in these big rail crashes, uh, and and that's why why the Federal Railway was about to move in this direction. Um, the, the the what happened is is that Metro North, uh, I think they've got some of like six thousand employees. That's the ones that got long. Ireland and all that uh, they actually put uh, a, a year ago they put a, a, a request for proposals for people to to screen their employees and diagnose them with sleep apnea Uh, You know, what they've done, I'm not sure it's the wisest thing, because what they did is they they basically gave these contracts to companies that provide home studies. So so they basically funded home studies with a couple of companies, saying that the primary care would be the group of people who would manage the the sleep apnea and the CPAP. And I'm not sure that's the wisest thing, uh, because you you could end up having diagnosed people with sleep apnea, just like the Snyder people, and, and they're not using CPAP. And I think you may have more risk because you now know they get sleep apnea and they're not being effectively treated. So I believe the model is is, is, I think certain people need to be screened. You need to do that in the most cost effective way possible. I think home studies can be done, uh, except I think you've got to worry about the chain of custody thing. The way we do that is we do a telemedicine visit to the driver in their bedroom the night they're getting the study. We can see them with the equipment on and so on. I mean, that's one way. There's other equipment which, you know, automatically gives you chain of custody. Get them in CPAP, and then you can Bluetooth them and then make sure they're compliant, uh, and, and you end up uh, getting them compliant. The program we've got with Amerigas is only in new hires uh, because what happens is when Amerigas, if we're doing it in well, I think we've started with six states, we're now up to 14 or something. But the, what, what happens is against tells the people who are getting hired, you know, from our perspective, if the occupational medicine person thinks you might have sleep apnea, we'll, we'll get you evaluated. And if you're found to have significant sleep apnea, we define that as an AHI greater than 15, you, you need to be compliant with CPAP, otherwise we're not gonna hire you. So there's a very strong stick with that, and so obviously we get very, really good compliance because of that. Uh, But, you know, from their perspective, it's a huge risk to have propane trucks, you know, with explosive in the back, driven by people with undiagnosed sleep apnea. So I think there are model programs developing. Uh, As I said, I don't think the Metro North program is a particularly good one because it's not about diagnosing the people. It's about treating them. It's getting them effectively treated. Get them in CPAP, getting them to use it, and then then continue to work. And you know, there's no reason to believe they'll have increased crash rates if they're very compliant with CPAP.
0: Correct. So, how do you think these um, commercial drivers are different from commercial pilots? Because it seems to me that the FAA has much stronger recommendations for their commercial pilots than
1: well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, 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 the union blocked that. The FAA was was basically they were going with individuals with a BMI greater than 40 and they needed a sleep study and the pilots union (laughs) got outraged about that and blocked it.
0: Oh, so actually the FAA is less, uh, strict then, and uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm just saying. I believe that the FAA. I mean, there's lots of they've got lots of regulations about hours of duty and sleep and all of that business. But my understanding of the FAA medical director trying to get in, in place uh, any any pilot. You don't see them in commercial airlines. They must be somewhere else uh, with a BMI above forty. you don't see many of them, and the airlines pilots' association uh, objected to that, and I think effectively blocked it. There's, there's a tremendous amount of emotion in this that you know people feel regulated controlled and stuff like that and i understand that but what we're doing i mean we, we've got people in, in the AmeriGas program they just swear by it they say you know this is the greatest thing. I feel so much better. I mean what you're doing is you're not only making the public safer, but you're actually helping the driver, their quality of life, their their medical conditions and so on. And it's a very it's a very straightforward thing as long as we keep the cost down, which we've tried to do, and, and we can get lots of people effectively treated. So there's benefit all around and but nevertheless, you know, there is this sense the big brother is telling you what to do. And we shouldn't have any of that. you know. So yeah. <laughs> that's where the pushback comes from. But it's not rational.
0: And, and, and actually, to your point, I was looking at the FAA website right now, and they do not have a BMI cutoff. So their guidelines right. are um, up to date. As of 2015, they have not updated anything else, and they do not have a right. BMI cutoff. It's for yeah, a combination do, uh, of, of things uh, used by a physician to decide
1: whether or not someone is at risk for right. having yeah. something happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they, they were bringing it out above 40, and I think the Pilots' Union blocked them. huh Right, right. So
0: the other question I have for you is, at this stage, given the, um, as you mentioned, the, and on August 27, the FMCSA right. announced that they're really not making any uh, major changes to their current recommendations. In fact, I'm just going to quote what they said. The agencies believe that current safety programs and FRA's rulemaking address fatigue risk management or the appropriate avenues to address OSA, and they right, said that they will come up with an update to the January 2015 bulletin that we just discussed earlier based right. on the Medical Review Board panel experts' recommendations that was done in August 2016. So right. we have yet to see that update. But given right. the circumstance right now where they're not really going to make any major official changes, what do you think the role of some of the interested parties like ATSSRN, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, what should yeah, we well, be you doing know, I, to try and
1: support yeah, I, this? Yeah. Yeah, I I think there's there's a number of things we can do. And and let me just say that uh, it's not just this issue of moving backwards here. Uh, where well, we're making great progress is not just related to this particular issue we're talking about in, in sleep happening commercial drivers mark rosekind who was originally in the national transportation safety board and then eventually became administrator for national highway traffic safety administration (NHTSA), did a fantastic job pushing the whole issue of drowsy driving and, in fact, there was a workshop oh, a couple of years ago uh, that then led to a national plan. We published that in the journal Sleep, but we did it with Mark. The Sleep Research Society did. And, and Mark established a drowsy driving office for the first time in the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So, so last year, there, again, there was this national plan was being developed. Where people were pushing ahead to do it. And it was a very comprehensive plan based on the workshop that had been held. Uh, the plan was to be announced at a fatigue workshop or some some scientific meeting on sleepiness and fatigue uh, that was going to be held on the west coast in march the day before the workshop uh this meeting this scientific meeting the guy who'd been appointed director of drowsy driving office at nitsa called up to say he wasn't coming and he wasn't going to be able to present the plan so so they took the view that in the current administration presenting a drowsy driving plan was not going to be well received he then has subsequently left mark has left obviously the guy who was in head head of the Drowsy Driving thing? He's also left and got into the corporate sector, so that initiative, I think, is basically stopped as well. So all the great initiatives, the Drowsy National Drowsy Driving Initiative, the the um, you know what was going on at FMCSA, they've, got, they've all come to a, a, a complete stop. Uh, I, I think there's, there's certain things that the, our societies can do. The first thing we've done is the the Sleep Research Society, the American society and the Academy we all got together and we did write a letter to DOT indicating you know that we, we were unhappy with this. okay uh, we, the, the SRS is holding a congressional briefing on November 15th and we'll certainly be talking about this is one of the things that we're doing um, but I think the other thing to realize and you can see that uh, you know in, in terms of where, where action in the United States is likely to take place uh, I mean if you look at the, the pulling out the Paris Accords and so on, and yet you still get states like California, New York saying we're going to continue to to move in this area. So I think the other thing we can do in this area is not just you know try to influence DOT, which I don't think end's going to happen under the current administration, but, but actually get active at the state level and, and talk to talk to them. There's lots of traffic safety people. In fact there's a there's a thing called the, the traffic the traffic safety administrators or the governor. Every governor has to appoint a traffic safety administrator essentially that money flows from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration out to the states Uh, You know, the money comes in through through the federal gas tax. It goes to NHTSA and then it goes out to these people at every state level and they can put workshops and NHTSA doesn't micromanage it. It tells them, you know, these are the areas we think are really important, but they don't micromanage it. So there is a lot of resources out at the state level. And I believe that in addition to... Pushing, you know, pushing our opinion in Washington, writing about it, uh, and so on, and really, really just taking it on and, uh, you know, t- telling people what the data is. That's what we are. We we have the data. Here's the data, uh, and let people think about that. But in addition, I do believe there's an opportunity to, if you could get some of the big states to say, like California, New Jersey, or some of these states where there's loads of trucks going through up and down these major interstates, and maybe some of the, in the middle of the country. If you could influence that. Then I think you you may end up making a difference because if you look at the if you look at the traffic safety world uh, I mean drunk driving seat belts that was never a federal initiative initially that came from individual states and then other states picked it up and eventually it was picked up by the federal government so it's, it's much easier I believe to influence the states they're much more flexible the the, the the lobbies that are can block stuff in Washington are not quite as advanced and effective out there in the individual states so I would say push the issue nationally trying to do what you're doing like this congressional briefing we and I think that METS has done that as well and then at the same time trying to work together to to really influence state governments and trying to get you know meetings going, and I mean they love that because you know these governors people they they want to do things they want to do pro- new programs, and if you go to them and say we can help you put a program on of X, then they're very likely to do it because you know they're getting something that's novel for people to talk about. So I think a combination, but I, I wouldn't bypass the, the, the what you can do at the state level, which I think is quite substantial.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Uh, Dr. Pack. This was a very informative uh, discussion, and I'm sure our audience will enjoy listening to it as well.